Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today I'm having a gas with Andy Nairn, one of the co-founders of Lucky Generals. Now Andy has a strategy background, but he's written a new book called Go Look Yourself, about how to better position yourself to be the recipient of good fortune. And Andy told me all about it recently. Andy, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. It's really great to be here. Was that a reasonable uh, summary? That was a fantastic summary. I should get you to do all my preambles and yes. set up every time I have to do this sort of thing. I'll just turn up like a yeah, like a a, a, a wizard Amazing. with a little curtain. So um, so I'm looking forward to talking about the book and and it's quite an interesting hypothesis to dig, dig into. But first of all, um, tell me how the last year has been for you. We're almost coming up on our one year anniversary of COVID being a real problem and not just a, a tr- you know, a trivial background noise. How has it been? Well, like everybody, I suppose we've had ups and downs. I mean, um, personally, it's, I've, I have, uh, I guess, you know, been insulated from the worst things, you know, our family's been well, you know, which is the main thing, obviously, that one thinks about. Um, and, um, you know, the business has been, you know, doing well, all things considered. So, you know, lots of people have had it much, you know, worse than um, than than I have or we have. But it's still, um, it's not, it's not been enjoyable. I'm not one of these people. Much though, you know, I do like spending a little bit of time at home, and it's nice to spend some time with the family and all the rest of it. I do miss the office as well and sort of working with, um, you know, with all our mates really, and uh, you know, our little gang. Um, you know, doing things creatively is harder when you're in separate places. I still think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It reminded me of um, a quote from the filmmaker Kevin Smith when he went to uh, pitch to Miramax, um, of course, controversially run uh, by Harvey Weinstein. Uh, but um, he said, you know, they were trying to bring on a load of talent, a load of A-listers, and he's, and he's saying, no, no, I've got my mate Ben Affleck and I've got my mate Jay. And they said, uh, Kevin, it's not about making a movie with your friends. And he said, well, that's, what I, that's all I want to do, really. And is that what you guys set out to do with Lucky Generals? Well, we, yes, I guess in a way it was. We we had a, a, an advantage in that. So um, there's two other founders who are both my long-standing friends, and that was definitely our our relationship is obviously you know very um, professional, but also you know we are mates, and we you know we really like each other's company, enjoy spending time with each other, and have fun, you know. And we had all worked with each other for quite a long time, at, um, other agencies, and been successful, but but crucially had enjoyed it. I think you know life was too short to sort of slog it out with people you don't like working with. And obviously there are lots of people who are incredibly talented that you just don't really particularly enjoy working with. And so we set out to have a good time as well as to, you know, be successful in the more obvious ways. And I think that sort of um, worked its way through the rest of the culture. We have uh, hired people that we think will enhance the, you know, the greater good, the, the fun and the um, the culture of the place. That, that's been so crucial to us. And I think has got us through the worst of, some of these terrible things have been going on in the last 12 months. Great. So that's where we are now. Um, why don't you take me through a little bit of how you came to be founding, a uh, founder of this agency, sorry. How, what, what happened before that? You know, when did you get into the industry and, 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 and what brought you into it? Well, I fell into the industry by fluke. I mean, like a lot of people probably. I mean, I had no, certainly no intention or sort of um, interest in terms of um, advertising wasn't on my radar. And I did law at university. I saw it partly because I couldn't think of what to do there either, but I thought law is quite a general thing that you can yeah. do that looks good in a CV. Uh, so I did law. I really enjoyed it, actually. I really um, liked sort of taking a problem and then trying to find the best expression of it, the best answer. You know, you're putting a client's case forward. But I didn't fancy the idea of doing it sort of too in such a corporate world that, you know, yeah. kind of be friends, becoming quite sort of corporate in that space and having to go off in suits and all the rest of it. So I, I sort of confided in a, a law lecturer uh, and just by sheer good chance, he was he was an amazing person, a lovely person who's now very famous. He's an art, an author called Alexander McCall Smith and he's he's sold tens of millions of books, um, wow. uh, which is quite a lot more than I expect I'll be <laughs> selling. So he's a proper, proper mega best-selling author of the Women's Detective, uh, the Ladies Detective Agency, um, sort of sitting Botswana is a whole series of books. But anyway, he he was, at that time, he was lecturing law. And he said, well, if you don't, you know, if you like the course and you like, you know, advocating for someone, you know, um, 
putting their best case forward, but you don't fancy doing it in a sort of corporate environment. Have you thought about advertising? And if so, I can get you a cup of coffee with someone. So I had a Brilliant. cup of coffee with somebody. That didn't really come to anything, but it did pique my interest. Um, and a couple of years later, I ended up in the bright lights of London. Yeah, of course. So so this was, in a, what city were you in where this was all taking place? That was all in Edinburgh. Um, right. uh, the greatest city in the world. It is a good city. Do you know it well? I only know it from going to the, the festival, you know, uh, no. a, a few times and... You know, those are some of the fondest memories, and you know, God willing, it will it will return real soon. Yeah, I certainly miss it. No, it's a fantastic place. Obviously, you know, if you're into the arts or music, or you know, if you're a student, it's also a great place to live. So again, I had a, had a brilliant time up there, and I would have, you know, probably, you know, I did apply to lots of agencies um, for jobs, and and you know, there wasn't much doing there. So like a lot of people, uh, came south, like Dick Whittington, to try and yeah, of course, find yeah. down here. Yeah, great. So I mean, that's it's good. Like you say, you were doing law, and one of the generalizable skills from law is a, a predisposition to hardcore verbal reasoning, and so that will put you in a good position for trying to sell into a client, won't it? Trying to make a case as to why this is the idea that you should be going with, amongst many other things. That's that's right. I think you've got to um, you've got to assimilate lots of facts, mm-hmm. um, and then also try and work out beyond just the facts. How they will play in somebody else's mind, you know. You know, it's a persuasive profession, isn't it? And I suppose in lawyers' case, you're trying to persuade either a judge or a jury or both. Um, and so you have to think about the, the human interpretation of the facts and how you can tell a story. You know, all the best barristers and advocates and solicitors talk about storytelling, um, albeit in a very different context to the way that that we do. So I, I do think that, and there's quite a few. You know, um, you occasionally bump into a few other. Sort of refugees from that world that have also made that transition, and I, and we, I do think there are a few sort of uh, common traits um, that that have been transplanted. Yeah. So in the world of advertising, um, because you're listed as you know founder at Lucky Generals, and I was interested to know which of the uh, disciplines in the industry you most strongly identify with. Are you account person? Are you a media planner or, or planner more generally? Where do you fit? I'm a planner. So again, I had no idea what that was. I mean, when I, um, uh, I so I'd, by this stage, I decided that I quite like advertising and I applied to the sort of, I suppose you might call it the graduate um, account program or whatever you call it, um, sort of trainee scheme um, as an account manager because that's where the jobs were. Um, and uh, and then I think halfway through that, a, a big agency called Abbott Mid Vickers, who you'll obviously know, um, they they sort of said, well, actually, we, we think you'd be much better as this thing as a planner. I've right. literally never heard of it before, so uh, but I'm really grateful uh, that they said that because I, I would I think would be quite a terrible account manager. Yeah. So I think they were saving me from myself, saving the industry from me as well. So then so then I got into that. So that you know, and then strategy has been my sort of thing uh, ever since. So the the interesting thing in the story of how you got into the industry is there's already been two examples of being in a fortunate position, being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right person. And so later on, we're going to uh, hook back into that because I know it's part of the the, the mission going forwards. But um, but let's, let's dig into the concept of the book because I was interested as soon as people were saying to me, oh, the idea of lucky generals is... It, it's this quote from Napoleon. He wanted all his generals to be lucky. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good and it sounds cool, but it probably doesn't really mean anything, you know? And like, then you lay out this really compelling case for uh, some people are luckier than others. And there's even a hint of the suggestion that there may be a biological predisposition to that, as in you're not too grounded in and stuck into uh, a task that you can't notice serendipitous details floating past. Is that like, is that roughly an approximation of the idea? Um, yes, I mean, I would say that the the that last thing might not be quite right, and I think it's a biological thing. I think it's probably something you can train. It's just by you oh, know, right. um, uh, a mixture of nature, nurture, and all the rest of it. But but yes, they're, they're, that's true. I mean, even then, it's funny because I have to say, and I, maybe this will spoil the the narrative, but we didn't have any of this um, really in mind when we formed Lucky Jones. We we frankly just liked the name. It was quite a cool, like it is, yeah. cool name from. Uh, uh, this Napoleon quote, and we like the sound of it. And actually, Danny, my creative partner, who's you know one of the other founders, 
he had been in a band or he wanted to form a band at school that would be called Lucky Generals and that for whatever reason didn't quite come off. It ended up being something else, I think ridiculous, like um, Renegade or something pretentious like that. Yeah. Um, so a very he, bandy uh, band name. It was like a real 70s sort of band. But he'd always sort of had this in his mind that, you know, we'd be great name for a band or something. And then, you know, years later, this that became the thing. So we didn't really interrogate it too much. And, and actually it was more just sort of last year, just thinking, good, we've got a company that's called Lucky Generals and we never talk about luck. And 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 that's how I was sort of thinking, well, if, if someone like you had ever asked me why, you know, um, what's the theory by that, I would have really struggled. So I thought I'd better find out a little bit about luck and um, what it means and what it's all about. Great. So I've read some of the material you're sent over to get uh, familiar with it. And why don't you, uh, for the benefit of the tape, why don't you take us through this uh, example you give uh, with the newspaper and looking for photographs? Yeah, so this is a great experiment done by a some renowned expert, and it's called um, Professor Richard Wiseman. And he's he's an expert in the psychology of luck, which again is a whole discipline I've never even sort of heard of. But mm-hmm. um, he does this experiment where he gets... Uh, he asks people to self-identify. Are they? Are you generally a sort of a lucky kind of person, or would you describe yourself as being unlucky? And then he uh, gets everybody to read uh, a newspaper and to go through the newspaper and see if they can count the number of uh, photographs in the newspaper. And what happens is that the people who uh, get there, who who are say that they are lucky, manage to do it in a couple of seconds, and the people who say that they are unlucky tend to take. A couple of minutes to do it so it's quite a huge gap hmm. and the reason is that people who describe themselves as lucky quite often all that's really going on is that they are maybe more attuned to other stuff going on in the world and what he's done on page two is add a little notice that says you can stop counting now um there are 42 photographs in this newspaper just tell the interviewer take your money and you can go so if you're sort of the sort of person that might notice things beyond the thing you're supposed to be looking for so you're supposed to, supposed to be looking for photographs but you notice this other thing that says what the answer is then that sort of person obviously does it very quickly whereas the unlucky people are maybe the sort of people who are a bit more in some ways conscientious or heads down focused on the task at hand and he uses that to kind of make the point that um that's all that luck often comes down to is people who who spot opportunities you know, it's, the unlucky people might be just missing out on a whole bunch of stuff that is going on around them and they're just not um, sort of clocking it. And I thought that was really interesting. His All his research is done from a sort of individual point of view and he sort of trains or does courses to teach people to be more alert to some of the things going on around them in their lives. And, um, but I thought that could, that could fit really well with organisations as well because a lot of the time organisations, you know, people in them are very focused on one thing at a time and, and miss out on all the cool and interesting stuff that goes on around them. Yeah, you might, I mean, this is probably um, probably an imperfect example, but I might turn to the recent fortunes of the Arcadia group and what's happened to them. And well, that's less a, that's less a case of not noticing that the internet was an opportunity to be exploited for e-commerce. And I think the inside, you know, the inside story appears to be that so Philip Green was kind of opposed to e-commerce and, you know, really valued the in-store experience. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hang a real-world example onto this of when a brand or an organization was so focused on one thing, they failed to notice uh, something that would have been entirely more um, profitable for them to be focused on, you know. I think that's a great example of it, actually. And, and there's been lots of companies like that. I mean, Microsoft for a long time, Bill Gates even, you know, dismissed the internet and didn't think it was going to be a big thing, which seems sort of wow incredible now. Um, and, um, you know, lots of businesses are, you know, heads down, focused in what they're doing, and it can become their undoing because they become sort of quite insular. Uh, and then something else might be happening either in culture or society or technology. And they, then they are like the people that are just, just focusing on counting the photographs. And one of their competitors is, you know, perhaps sort of looking around them a little bit more and spotting that opportunity over there. Um, there's, a, there's a nice sort of phrase, I can't remember, I think it was a writer called Sally Kozlov said, um, you've got you to recognise luck uh, when it's waving at you, which I quite like, you know, this idea of luck. It's waving to all of us, but some of us are spotting it and, and doing something about it and other people are just oblivious, you know, carrying on with their work. Yes, I am... Um... 
uh, reminded of a really bad example. Um, or no, it's not a bad example. It's just not from high culture where um, in uh, Men in Black, you know, the 1997 movie with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, uh, they're taken for, you know, a marksmanship test. And uh, all of the Air Force officers and all the Marines are all taking out the things that are obviously targets. And Will Smith um, takes out a little girl. and He's like, why'd you do that? And, and he says to them, well, you know, she's out in a bad neighborhood in the middle of the night with an advanced quantum physics book. That doesn't look like a, the typical behavior for an 11-year-old girl. So I thought maybe that's the mark. So again, a crass example, but I put it in because I know that when we have this QA, someone will be able to put that overlay on there and it will look cool. But um, yeah, I think this, um, this uh, hypothesis, not this hypothesis, what would you call it? Is it a model? Is it a theory that you've been developing? Or it's just an idea to be elaborated on really, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's an idea. The idea as a whole um, is that we that there is such a thing called luck, and that we should try and uh, improve it and increase it. Um, and then there's lots of different ideas within the book to try and sort of help you to do that. Now, I'm interested in it because I know there's a lot of debate in our industry at the moment about the obsession with measuring and predicting results, and um, this is. Um, I think interesting to me because it's someone from the world of planning. And I'm not saying that planners aren't creative. They have to be, obviously, to get the best results. But you would expect it to be, you know, a you know an ECD or someone from that world, one of our rock star creatives saying, oh, you need to leave space for the unpredictable. But it's interesting that it's coming from the planning department. And I don't know if any of this for you sort of hangs on to, you know, the, the broader debate about brand building and sales activation you know, um, and the idea that you need to pursue advertising activity uh, that has some 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 risk and you don't know what results it's going to produce maybe and you don't know, yeah, what it's going to return. Yeah, I think the whole uh, approach of Western business, of which obviously advertising is a part, is to try and, first of all, deny that luck has any you know, role to play. So that's kind of what most of us are taught. You know, there's no such thing as hard as luck. It's all about hard work and just... You know, the harder you work, the luckier you get is the kind of often used sort of weird theory. paradox. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of just keep on, you know, working harder. Um, and then, um, you know, but I feel like we can kind of see from our own eyes and our own experience that that's, you know, obviously I'm a big believer in hard work, but that can't be the whole story. And actually, I think it's sort of almost insulting to to say to somebody, you know, just work harder. And you, if you haven't succeeded, it's because you haven't worked hard enough. You know, there are people all around the world who are maybe being born into circumstances where any amount of hard work is probably going to struggle to get them out of that situation. And to just say, yeah, well, you've got to make more of your luck and, you know, uh, hard work will get you anywhere to somebody in very difficult circumstances isn't really helpful. And it's, I think the same goes for brands. I think um, it's being mindful of, you know, there's some things you can't change, but um, sometimes the lucky circumstances that you've been given just by being conscious of it and mindful of it it's like a lot of things in life if you if you recognize oh hold on that's quite lucky that i've got this gift or that i've been i've inherited this quality or this you know um, asset then you're much more likely to um use it wisely than if you're just oblivious to it all and you just carry on through life like um like there's no such thing as luck and you just worked really hard for everything yeah um, and i think it's getting that into businesses and to see getting to see luck as a friendly thing as a, as a good thing as a positive rather than something a bit scary that they've got to eradicate, like you say, by measuring it to death and trying to eradicate it from their processes. Yeah, I, I remember um, someone you know associated with us on the finance side of things referring to it as chaos theory. And you have to really notice the use of the word chaos there, which we don't really associate mm -hmm. with positive things. So it's like luck is, is almost like the, uh, the, the, the positive opposite of chaos. Yeah, yeah. And you can... Um, you can, you know, I think what's interesting and really the whole point of the book is that you can, you can bring a little bit of order to it. You know, people are scared by luck because it sounds like this kind of mystical force that you can't control and is out of your hands. And while, you know, some forms of it are impossible to, you know, control, none of us or very few of us could have done very much about the pandemic um, last year being an obvious example. Um, but you can, there are certain aspects that you can control or you can sort of, used to it's like anything you know any a game um you know apart from there are games of pure chance aren't they where you can't really do you know much about the 
how the dice rolls. Yes. But there are other games that are not pure chance, and that there's an element of chance because you get dealt a hand of cards. But but after that point, it's how you deal with them and um, how you make the best of the. I think that's true of people and companies. Yeah, I think the um, the example of you know using uh, using the analogy of games is perfect because. Um, there you have um, a scenario where a lot of the variables are controlled. So, you know, you've you've agreed to play the game, you've agreed roughly how long it lasts, you've agreed all the rules, and then there's this space where you allow the potential for good luck to play a role. And um, no pun intended on role there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it's probably one of the biggest secrets of the creative work, it, which is that we basically depend on good luck um, almost 100%. So when we're sitting down to properly compose, you don't start with a plan. You start uh, kind of, well, improvising. You randomly assemble sounds and then you will hear the right one. You won't kind of pre-plan it and execute it. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe is this something uh, you're trying to bring to our in, uh, bring to the attention of our industry as a whole to say that, you know, not only is luck a factor, but we actually all allocate a space for luck already and we just haven't paid attention to it. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. There's a lovely quote um, from Quincy Jones, who you will know is the you know, probably biggest and most amazing producer of all time, really. Yeah. And he um, he's very process-driven. So he is quite sort of scientific about, you know, how he lays tracks down and time lengths and, you know, you know, has sort of metrics in his head about how long something should be or how many, you know, um, the, the ratios of different sort of musical metrics and all that kind of stuff. But he also realizes, obviously, he's got to leave room for magic. And he 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 says that um, I, I like to leave 20 or 30 percent um, of the time for the Lord to walk through the room. And he's got that pinned up, that slogan on his recording studio, let the Lord walk through the room, which I think is a brilliant um, question for all um, you know, creative people, isn't it? And and that's sort of you know because it's cause it's different from saying yeah, just be lazy and chuck any old crap together, and you don't have to work. No, you've got to work hard, and you've got to you know know your stuff, and know your discipline. But then, like you say, you've got to try some stuff out, and you don't probably know until you've tried some stuff out how it will how it will pan out. Um, exactly that, yeah. There's um, I heard a great podcast on uh, BBC Sounds recently about composition. Uh, always trying to keep an ear to the ground, uh, you know, on our on on our particular method, and it was presenting a what would you call it, an argument between the idea of kind of magical genius yeah. and the idea of random experimentation. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that your theory, your idea, kind of falls in the middle because what it sounds like you're suggesting is that. Let's say someone like Steve Jobs, for example, is often referred to as genius quite a lot. And like there's some extraterrestrial quality that people like that have that ordinary people could not gain access to. Um, and so would you say that, in, you know, in fact, the case is that there's not some kind of magical special ability beyond the fact that they left their field of view open for other possibilities they hadn't considered? Yeah, I think, I mean, he was obviously, you know, um, unbelievably talented and, um, you know, clearly was a very special and interesting sort of, you know, person. Um, but he would, he often talked about luck. So he was, he was very, very conscious of it. And he did a very famous speech, I think, at Stanford, where he talked about all the dots um, joining up and that sometimes we don't recognize these dots joining up until after. So, for instance, I think I'm right in saying that he, he dropped out of college. Um, and uh, one of the things he did when he dropped out of college was calligraphy, of all things. Yeah. Um, and that was um, not particularly an obvious way to make your fortune, I don't suppose. But then it actually came in really useful uh, when he designed the the user interface that Apple became very famous for, this very intuitive, simple human interface. And it was all... And so in later years, he would look back on that as being an incredible stroke of luck that he couldn't predict at the time. But again, it's an example of... Um, he was somebody who was looking up and around him and taking inspiration from something as bizarre as calligraphy rather than just having his head down in the, you know, reading every computer software book that he could have uh, read. Um, so I think he is a good example for all of us. You know, we probably can't quite all aspire to his success, but he was he was regularly, you know, like a lot of, a lot of things in luck come to, you've got to put yourself in positions to be lucky. And, and I think he did that. He... He tried out all sorts of different things. 
And in fact, actually, in his later years, when he was running Apple, I think what's very interesting is that he deliberately used to try and kill off his own products. You know, because his attitude was, if I don't um, kill this product, um, somebody else is going to kill it. So he was almost always trying to provoke uh, Nike's bad luck, you know, make his own bad luck so that he had to invent some good luck to um, overcome it. So I, I find someone like him really satisfying. And in our own small, humble way, like I say, we're not perhaps going to reach his dizzying heights, but I think everybody in their lives can take some benefits or take some lessons from that, of just trying lots of different stuff out and um, pushing yourself to um, put yourself in situations where you might find some lucky connections. So if you took one of the people in the newspaper experiment who identified as unlucky, uh, what I mean, and this may all be stuff you go into uh, in the book, but um, if someone says, oh, I'm an unlucky person, and I know people who think like that, I mean, you know, bless us all, my own mother tends to think like that. What is really going on with them? What do you think? I think it might be a mixture of um, this, this sort of three or four things that could be going on there. I mean, the the most, you know, one is just the requirement to appreciate what you got. So a lot of people, um, there's, a, there's a lovely quote from Roald Dahl uh, from Charlie the Chocolate Factory. So just, uh, again, we're getting all the populist references out now. They're not exactly yeah. crazily highbrow sort of academic books, but... Um, he well, I, said, spoke to, I spoke to Rory Sutherland last week, so we've already done Oh, there that, you go, yeah. Kelly. He, he's, uh, I'm sure, had a much uh, more intelligent um, uh, list of books to quote from. Um, I'll, I'll do Charlie the Chocolate Factory. Uh, and he, he, it was really interesting. So he said, we are all of us a great deal luckier than we realise. And I thought that's a really nice sort of attitude to life. We're all of us a great deal luckier than we realise. And I think a lot of people just don't, you know, we, we tell a little story in our minds about, you know, we've been unlucky and we haven't had advantages or the things that have gone wrong in our lives. But but quite often we might be, we might have some amazing uh, things that we perhaps don't appreciate enough. And it takes someone else to sort of spot, no, no, what about that thing you've got there? Or this fact that you're brilliant at that. And that's one of the things um, that I think is really relevant to brands and businesses often uh, forget all these incredible assets that they're sitting on, or these amazing, uh, you know, qualities that they could call on, because they, and they've just told themselves that they're unlucky or they're not doing so well at the moment. And um, so that's one thing. I think this 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 newspaper analogy that I keep coming back to is kind of another one where a lot of people um, they just haven't spotted these opportunities when they've been waving at them. They've been heads down, and the chances have been around them, but perhaps they weren't looking up and um, you know putting themselves out into the outside world enough. And then the, maybe the third one is is about bad luck and how we deal with bad luck. You know, and a lot of you know the most successful people in the world have really come through adversity and turned something that actually was bad into something good. And and you know, often inevitably, the tendency for all of us, and I include myself, lots of times, is when something bad happens, it's you know your shoulders drop and you think, oh God, that was unlucky. But it's you know, if you can if you can get over those humps, then that's. Uh, a huge part of uh, success, I think. Yeah, I suppose part of it might come down to, um, you know, how we are more sensitive to negative than positive. So, you know, we feel the pain of losing a tenor more than we feel the gain of finding one. Mm. And I think maybe, do you think that has something, uh, plays a part of some people who would say, oh, I'm just unlucky, is they're really carrying the, the, the pain with them every time of that and it's overrepresented in their imagination? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely that. And it's trying to, Deal with the things that you can um, you control. You might not be able to do anything about the loss that you've just uh, experienced, but to turn that on its head into a good thing, um, you know, is, is a huge problem. So if I'm, I'm looking at a thing here, this, um, this sort of by coincidence um, is sitting on my desk now. This is a funny little character. Do you know? Do you know who that is? Uh, I know. It looks a bit like Mickey Mouse, doesn't it? But it's not. It's a it's a um, it's a character called Oswald, yeah, the Lucky Rabbit, and it was um, it was the first big hit character that Walt Disney ever created. <laughs> Cutting a long story short, he was going to make an absolute fortune out of this. It was a, it went down a treat. Um, Universal signed him up for twenty five movies, and he was in New York um, just about to sign the deal, and his partner sort of um, cheated him out of the. Uh, the rights to it. So he ended yeah. up sitting on a, on a train coming back to LA, gutted that he'd lost what he thought was going to be his fortune. Um, but rather than sit on that train despondent or give up, which is what he did think about doing, 
he started sketching. And of course, he started sketching something that then turned out to be Mickey Mouse. So the point is, if you can sort of take that moment, a lot of us would have just thought, oh, God, I, I had that success in my hands. But typical me, I've experienced some bad luck there. You know, we, we work in a tough business. You must get this a lot. You know, we get a lot of knockbacks and, yep. you know, things go wrong all the time. And it's your ability to bounce back from them as much as anything else that ultimately informs how lucky you are. Well, yeah, that, and that's perfect, isn't it? Because the fa- there's two famous training examples. There's that one you just described. And there's, of course, J.K. Rowling. Rowling, Rowling. Just hap- you're coming up with Harry Potter on the train from wherever yeah. it was, King's Cross to... Yeah. Uh, or, or something like that. And... Um, where I've thrown myself off now, I do that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it was to do with the uh, example you just gave. Oh, yeah, so no, we're going to talk more about Lucky Generals. So at uh, the moment in the industry, you guys are uh, notorious, I might say primarily for having the Amazon account. Because if there is a brand that defines this era that we're in, say this three to five years either side, uh, or three years either side of where we are now, it's probably Amazon. You know, the pandemic home delivery has become the way we do everything. and uh, But before that, you know, 2014 to 20 was just the big explosion of, uh, you know, the influence of that company. And so um, other agencies might be saying, well, look at that, they've got this huge account. It's taken, you know, it's taken them from one level to the next. Uh, they must just be uh, really fortunate in a way that we're not. But it sounded as if you were alluding there to the fact that there were some knockbacks along the way. Do you have any that you can you know, reveal the details of? Oh, wow. Well, um, I mean, we certainly had lots of knockbacks. Um, uh, I mean, even, uh, actually, first before I talk about the knockbacks, even getting Amazon was was quite lucky because it was when we were only about a year old and uh, they're obviously a huge company and we at that stage were tiny um, and it seemed very unlikely that they would want to work with us and at the time it was just a project and it's got bigger and bigger and bigger but the, the reason that they, or one of the, the reasons that they gave us it was that they've got a philosophy of what they call the two pizza rule. So they, they sort of said, no, we're actually looking for a small team. We don't want, we're big, so we don't want another yeah. big organization. And in fact, uh, we believe that if a team can't be fed on two pizzas, then it's too big. So actually the fact that you're just a tiny little tin pot agency in Exeth Market in London really appeals to us. So that that was quite a fortunate, you know, thing. And it started off small and, you know, it's got bigger and bigger and bigger, but we weren't we weren't given this enormous thing. We weren't given the Super Bowl ad in our first um, year. We weren't given the Global's of Holiday, you know, Christmas campaign in our first year. We've had to sort of um, seize that lucky opportunity uh, and then run with it. So that would be an example. But along the way, we've had tons of knockbacks. We've had things that were brilliant. Our founding client was Paddy Power, um, and we did loads of great work with Paddy Power. But as is often the case, then there was there were a lot of changes in the management team, and we got. Um, we effectively got fired from that after doing brilliant work that we, you know, had just felt that had really captured the brand and, and done really well for them. So that felt unfair, but rather than sit down and think, oh, woe is me, we can't um yeah. we can't go on. You just have to get on to the next pitch. And you you know that that's the stuff that happens in our world, isn't it? People move on, you lose pitches, you you get fired by new clients because they want to do something different. And there's no point in getting down in the dumps about it. You just got to pick yourself up. Yeah, it's um, there is there are two things that one has to manage. One is your own expectations all the time, and then uh, the other is, as you say, your uh, how you respond to uh, to bad things happening. So yeah, we had a similar, not on the same level, but a similar knockback a couple of years ago where we were pitching for all of the music for uh, Iceland. Uh, the, yeah, the. Uh, the, the food retailer and it's one of those where you know oh there's three people and we go and do a big presentation oh you're down to the the final two and frankly we really like you and then you know there's a big team and someone goes eeny meeny miny mo that one please and then I think eventually uh, that entire pitch uh, became what's the word you know none of none of anyone's work got used because they hired a new agency straight away afterwards so even whoever won will have eventually probably lost but mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing you got to get used to you and we can't be in this industry if we're going to stay down every time we fall you know you need to get yeah. straight back up yeah 100% i mean it's so brutal even the very best agencies have got you know probably less than 50% strike rate and uh you get you know, people don't realise, I think, sometimes how much, you know, agencies um, and other sort of um, brands like that put into some of these presentations. So, um, you know, they we're personally invested in it. I mean, not li- just literally 
financially, but sort of emotionally, the, the amount of passion you put in. I remember once we got um, some, we got a meeting where the clients at the end of the meeting stood up and gave us a round of applause <laughs> about how good it was. And then the next day told us that we hadn't got the business. So it was one of these you know, things where you just mustn't ever... Um, take for granted uh you know any any compliments any you know don't let anything go to your head don't let any any complacency ever creep in because you you just got to uh concentrate on doing the right thing and, and winning it and then and not giving yourself pats, pats on the back yeah. in, is it a case of act as if every piece of new business is your first is your founding client yeah yeah i think uh, you gotta you gotta show that you really genuinely want it um so we're very fussy about what we pitch for. We'd say no to a lot of stuff because we've sort of worked out that we're not very good at faking it either. Um, so it's not even like a particularly moral stance. I think it's just that we're just rubbish at it, you know, and we've we perhaps occasionally tried to go through the motions because we might have had our heads turned by something that was, you know, maybe it was a big brand that that um, would, you know, be worth a lot of money or maybe it was a cool brand that we, we thought might look good in our you know, um, you know, name list, but but then but then we'd maybe sort of lost the. You have to have a human connection, I think. You know, with the people that you're working with, and think, God, we're going to have a great fun here and do good work. Um, and if you find yourself going through the motions, we certainly have found it's um, it's just hard to to fake. You got to put your all into it. Yeah, and so what's really interesting picking up on that is your what are you now? Eight years into the project with Lucky Generals? Just about, yeah. Sort of uh, coming up to eight in May. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I'm 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 very new to the industry generally. I only really got into it 2017, but full time uh, 2019, uh, no 18. So um, what am I saying? It's to say that to me, it looks like the age that you guys are at is kind of the age where you're you're a grown up agency. You're not a startup anymore. You've got serious accounts, serious clients. You've done some serious work. Um, it's like um, you know the idea that at a certain age of adulthood, things stop being impressive. Uh, from like a prodigious perspective, people don't say, oh, well, that's good for your age. You know, if you're sort of 43 and, you know, you've got a reasonable promotion, it's like, yeah, well, you know, that's 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 what you should be doing right now. So what am I saying uh, by that? Oh, yeah. So um, who do you see at the moment coming up in the agency world, you know, and who are playing the game well and appear to be onto a, a, a you know, onto a good thing? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, we're very lucky in this country to have a thriving sort of startup culture. There's other agencies, which I think we're still probably, you know, very much bracketed with because although we are, you know, been going for seven years, there was really, I think we're still in the cohort of the likes of, you know, who do we get pitched up against? Uh, let me think. Um, Droga5, yep. uh, for instance, is an obvious one. Um, who I think are probably older than us, actually, but... Um, uh, they, they, you know, obviously, and they've certainly had an older pedigree in the states. But you've got Droga Five, um, you've got Uncommon, um, yeah. Uh, you've now got James Murphy's new outfit, uh, James Murphy and David Golding's Ian Hartfield's um, new commercial G arts, commercial arts. Um, uh, who else? You know, but then you've got perennial. I mean, the, one of the ones I admire most um, is Mother, who yeah. are, I guess, maybe must be at least twenty. I think 1998, maybe, Mother. That sounds about right, I think. So yeah. let's say 22, 23 years old. But, you know, I still feel they are, they feel really fresh and exciting and they've rejuvenated. I mean, they're the, in some ways, the the ones I would most because they've they've managed to keep themselves culturally relevant at the age. But, you know, they've ups and downs, but you know, more often than not, at the top of their game and sort of uh, doing really good work. So that's... That's what you got to do. You got to again say not place and um, we still think of ourselves as startup. You got to just keep that startup mentality. If you're technically not by you know chronologically, you got to make yourself feel that that way. But the minute you start getting corporate or sort of growing up, we, we don't really ever want to grow up. I don't think. Yeah, well, who does flipping heck? But uh, yeah, that was um, that was a, that was an interesting answer because. Um, you know, we, we we know that you guys are on the top 30 in terms of, uh, I think it's in terms of billings. Um, and uh, it's interesting that when I when you said, who do we often pitch up against and who do you compare yourself to? It was all startups. So I really, it did come through that you still see yourselves as an agency where you can't, you know, you can't rest on your laurels and you've still got something to prove, you know. And um, do you think, 
that that can tend to happen with agencies. They tend to get on a hot streak or maybe they get bought up into a big holding company and then things change. What what happens? Yeah, all those things really. Um, you know, and you know, the classic one is when the founders go because yeah. you know, this is a people business, isn't it? You're sort of dictated by um, you know, the the people who started the business and and then almost kind of create it in their own likeness. And I think um what you've got to do as a founder is, well, A, we're not going anywhere, so that's, um, that helps us enormously. But also you've got to make it not just about the three of you, because then when you go, that's what happens. Then it, then the whole thing disappears in a sort of puff of smoke sort of thing. Whereas if you can try and create a business and a culture that is you know, full of lots of people, interesting people at lots of different you know, um, levels, then when you do eventually you know, uh, take your foot off, that you know, or sort of head off into the sunset somehow, um, then you're leaving behind something that is still, you know, really thriving and uh, exciting and all the rest of it. Um, no, that's that, that killer. That's so, it. That's killer. Yeah, and um, I, you know, obviously the 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 Golding and Murphy example and Hartfield, of course, is a great one because uh, you could have said, and I think many people did say you're running the most successful shop. Everyone loves your work and you know, you're know you all you're number one on the leaderboard and all that stuff. Why are you getting out now to go and start again? What, what, what do you think the temptation is there? I think they're just incredibly ambitious uh, people who uh, always you know, will feel that there's new things to be done and new ways to prove themselves. So I, I feel like... Um, uh, while they're you know a competitor, they, again it's to be admired that they have decided to uh, go again. And um, uh, you know I think we should we should applaud entrepreneurs for trying to uh, you know keep, keep at it. And it would have been easy for them to sort of uh, you know retire off into sort of uh, luxury um, and and not bother about such things again. But um, good, good on them. I think that, yeah, that's, you're right. That's the endearing move, isn't it? Because it could have been easily the time to retire early, take a, you know, a, a payout and then um, just sit back. And obviously, I really, really admire the uh, spirit of uh, things are still changing. We're still in the game. It's still worth playing for. And uh, let's go back and start again and, and, and try the whole thing uh, from scratch. Because I think you do get, when, certainly we're a very young business. And I think once you've started and then grown a business, you kind of get addicted to the chase of going from zero to 100 more than from you know, 100 to 1,000. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think the thing is to just recognize how much changes, you know, if you, if you try and do exactly the same as you did the first time around, then it, um, it probably either won't work, and it and it probably won't be as satisfying again. So, I'm, and I'm sure they won't, you know, be trying to do that. I'm sure they will somehow um, try to uh, do things a bit differently, um, so that they don't just create another Adam and Eve. They'll be looking for ways to uh, to to put a new spin on things. That's that's where the excitement comes from. You know, for all of us, really, it's not standing still and trying to find new ways to sort of uh, new people as well to keep it all fresh. Yeah. So on the work side of things, uh, have you got anything that comes to mind from the last 12 months? Obviously, it's been a very interesting time to be making creative work. Uh, from the last 12 months that sticks in your mind, if I said, what's your favorite thing that you saw produced by any agency since 2020? What's the first thing that comes to your head? Uh, so other agencies, I would say, I, I feel like body form um, or libres, I can never remember which, I guess it's yeah. body form in this country, isn't it? Um They've done a great body of work, including this year with the sort of womb stories. Yeah. Um, work, but I feel like it's the latest in a succession of just brilliant work where they've taken taboos and uh, you know made them wonderful, glorious, amazing, yeah. uh, you know, celebrated things. Um, I feel like that's a, a brilliant body of work on a really difficult subject. Um, that, that should be applauded, which I think is by Abbott Mead um, Vickers. So. I believe so, yeah. We had um, Jules Chalkley at Ogilvy on the podcast a few months back and he said the same thing. He said, mm -hmm. womb stories, uh, amazing work. And uh, I think I might say, perhaps controversially, that it's in a subject matter that could easily get sanctimonious or preachy. And it didn't do that. It got really in, you know, it really dug into the subject matter and made some great film that I think would have stood up even without a commercial uh, purpose, you know, trying to, even if it wasn't trying to sell anything, I think it would be a great short film to be on like at our film festival. Do you know what I mean? It's just high quality stuff. 
Definitely. And it's, it's, that, it's that sort of content that passes that, ah, oh, fuck, I wish I'd done that test. You know, when you see it, yeah. you, you really enjoy it in the flood, but you also think, ah, that's, uh, that's uh, professionally annoying that someone else has come up with it, but good on them for doing it. Yeah. So I am um, contractually obliged, I'm not, I don't have a contract to do this, um, to uh, talk about some musical stuff. And one thing that I thought might hook into the subject matter is the, uh, it's not really a debate. The debate's kind of been, it, it, it's over and I'm trying to revive it such as I'm not really an influential person, but uh, about sync music, synced music versus composed music. Um, because my suspicion is that the temptation around searching and syncing is because once you found it, it's baked. All you really have to do is, you know, you can you can manipulate the the stereo master, you can move the song around. Mm. But you've you've got a really powerful track, and new commercial arts have just done this. In fact, with Halifax, they just put um, "Stand by Me" Oasis uh, on the new TVC, and it's a huge and very loud and very compelling sound. And so, you know, I I understand why there's a temptation to go and put that on it because. I suppose where this all hooks in is it's not leaving anything to chance or luck to say we're going to, you know, we are going to start with a blank page and end with a new track that no one's ever heard before. You kind of did this with Amazon and the show must go on. It's not just taking the song, it was, you know, rejuvenating it. So what do you think about that whole practice really? It's not quite a question, more of a just throwing the ball into your court. Yeah, I mean, it's a, as ever, so as a humble planner, I may not be the best person to answer, but I feel like, I mean, music is unbelievably important and the research overwhelmingly, you know, shows that music plays an enormous part in our enjoyment of advertising and is sort of underestimated as a factor. Um, and so we should spend a lot of time on it and getting it right. Um, and obviously it's horses for courses and we've, we've done both, you know, so we've used both, you know, uh, freshly composed music and and taken great songs and, and use them as tracks. But I think if you can, there's there's a lot to be said for composing or adapting to to the idea because then you know it fits like a glove rather than is just being um stuck on uh the back of it. So yes, the with that Amazon track it was it just really worked. Um, you know, the original wouldn't have worked on that. Um it'd be it'd be it would seem kind of melodramatic. Yeah, and we needed to tell a story. You know, it was a sort of a, it unfolded, so we couldn't have given the game away too early. There was just, it was quite a subtle hint of, you know, the chords and the interplay of the music to sort of, you, you weren't immediately aware that the theme was the show yeah. must go on. That, that needed to become clear at the end of the ad when we realised what the story was and what the, the, the message was. So, um, you know, and likewise... Um, you know, I think with some with our own Oasis track for the co-op at Christmas, we used uh, "Round Our Way," which is the you know the old uh, you know lovely uh, Oasis song. But we got a couple of kids to yeah. play it, which felt more authentic to something you know that the co-op might do. It's all about grassroots community rather than just lifting the track and and sticking yeah. it on. I really liked that advert. I thought it was great, and um, I'm going to reveal my bitter Mancunian side here perhaps and say that one of the great things about that advert was it was one of the few that didn't feel like it was made in London. I hope that doesn't sound, you know... That's great. It's music to our ears um, actually because we want, you know, the co-op's a Manchester brand yeah. and it's sort of heart, I mean obviously it's na- national but it's it should have a sensibility that, you know, we want to keep that Manchester sort of flame that sort of Manx spirit sort of um, in its breast so that that's sort of really good that you say that. Um and those two kids were, you know, sort of local kids that have, uh, you know, it just had a sort of a, a lovely homemade sort of, or, or certainly grassrootsy sort of community spirit to it, which was the whole point of it. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember sort of doing some research. It was a, it was a long time now ago, but it was a, for a Hovis campaign that turned out to be really successful. But I learned a lesson early on in the music. So we, we had this idea... Um, of uh, of a, a, a little lad who buys a, a loaf of bread in a shop in Victorian times, and then he runs through history, through you know the Second World War, the First World War, the Second World War, the World Cup, yeah. um, all the great events, you know the fireworks of the millennium, and comes back into um, modern day times and is mum's um, you know front room puts a loaf of bread down. Are you back yet, love? Yeah, back. Sort of uh, you know it's come back through you know 120 years worth of history. 
And um, anyway, we, when we researched that, we put a town called Malice on it because, you know, we, we were at that stage, we were just researching it. We needed to put a soundtrack on. There was a sort of a Billy Elliot sort of vibe about it. So um, we thought that might play it quite nicely. And we researched brilliantly. Everyone absolutely loved it and they loved that soundtrack. And it would have been so easy to just say, yeah, well, then this is a smash hit. We yeah. have to stick with what we know and the soundtrack. And and um, we decided not to. And we got some music composed that would fit perfectly um, that storyline and that could swell in the right places and die down, you know, when you, because you want different music when you're running through the blitz and there's kind of, you know, refugees sort of walking through the rubble. You want a different sort of tonality that you're just not going to get at the right moment from a, you know, a song that you just plunked on top. Yeah. It turned out to be brilliant. It was the best thing. And I could see then, you know, from a planning perspective, the, the magic that was added to it that I wouldn't have predicted because it wasn't like the Town Called Miles was a bad track. It's a great track, but you, you got an extra 10, 20, 30% of emotion from having something that fed like a glove. Yeah, no, that's absolutely great. And I really hope, well, I was going to say, I hope you can... Uh send us a link to it so we can have it on screen. But if we have done that, it'll have already happened. So um, yeah, no, that's that I, that kind of thing is exactly what we're all about. It's exactly what the ethos of your book is all about. Make sure you don't get too uh, focused on the trench that you're in so that you don't notice the opportunities that are uh, potentially floating outside of it. Um, the book, once again, is called Go Look Yourself by uh, Andy Nairn. Andy, do you want to give it a bit of a, a plug now? Where's it out? When's it out? How much is it? Uh, well, it is out. It's it's physically out in June, so it's a little bit while away, but now it's available to pre-order now, and, and that's the way that all books are sold now. You have to sort of, you have to try and get the pre-orders going so that Amazon's algorithms start cranking up into gear sort of thing. So if you do want it, it'd be great if you could buy it now. And the other important thing I should say is that all the proceeds, all the royalties are going to uh, an organisation called Commercial Break uh, that helps uh, working class kids get a uh, lucky break into the industry. So if you're buying it, you know, that it's out on Amazon, um, Waterstones, they're the two most obvious places to get it and, and the royalties will go to that very good cause. That's actually, yeah, thanks for reminding me. I did say at the outset of this, we wanted to hook back into that and that is uh, a great circle to complete. So you got into this industry, you've succeeded in this industry uh, on the basis of a couple of fortunate run-ins, knowing the right people at the right time. And so, um, let, you know, just tell us a little bit about um, the organization where the proceeds are going there. Because like you said, it's to make sure that people who ordinarily wouldn't have an easy route into this industry can get access. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, uh, advertising and the paper industry is one of the most elite industries in the sense that it's got the lowest proportion of uh, working class kids. And it's, it's a real... Um, challenge and is is sort of related to all the other you know things that we are increasingly aware that we need to do you know we've got a bad record on ethnic diversity for instance but that's very closely intertwined certainly in this country with with um, class yes uh, so uh i just became very conscious last year that there's a lot of people that were a lot worse off than me so uh, i wanted to try and do something that could help so i liked i like the idea of a book that's all about luck um maybe help and bring a little bit of luck to people who haven't had that good fortune. Uh, yeah. And they're a great organisation. They, they're ex-agency, but they help um, find really good people from diverse backgrounds who wouldn't normally even consider getting into advertising. And then they introduce them to agencies and to you know music companies or you know brands or whoever. Um, and then they help them flourish in those places as well. So it's, I think it's a brilliant organisation. I'm really rooting for them in all of this. It's brilliant. Let's make sure that we can get people in. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people for this podcast and they all say, well, not they all say, a lot of people say back in, let's say the 80s, the 90s, there was a random falling into it that tended to happen. You got all kinds of weirdos coming in and it was a great place to be. Let's see if we can make it a great place to be again. And, you know, I found certainly as, you know, someone who used to be a... Um, you know, self-obsessed, uh, arrogant, like, oh, I'm going to be an artist. I'm not going to work in advertising. Um, you know, it's a great industry to be part of. It's really fun. It's really exciting. So let's just try and get the enthusiasm back for the youngsters. Yeah, de definitely. And, you know, that's got to be reflected in our work. That's how we will all collectively, you know, think of this, look at the you know, platforms like TikTok or, you know, um, platforms where young people or people of all ages, but from different backgrounds are creating amazing uh, work that we are just going to, um, exclude ourselves from if we don't um, get them into our industry and 
Um, we, we just can't afford to let that happen. It's a commercial argument as much as a, an ethical one. Although they no, no, you're absolutely right. That is the one of the, um, like you say, the, the one of the strong arguments for uh, diversity that doesn't, as you say, hang on the 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 ethical suppositions. Is that you're just going to get a broader range of different styles of thinking that's just going to be more useful. And again, opens you up to that good fortune, things you didn't predict coming in and turning things for the better. Yeah, definitely. So, so that will happen. Um, we're, and, we're for what are your predictions for this year in terms of good luck? Because one thing I forgot to get in there, I knew it was, it was lingering the whole time, is that I actually have a suspicion that um, our prime minister kind of hinges on good luck for a lot of things. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but... You know, he's certainly not a uh, um, a traditional, um, what would you say, conservative individual. You know what I mean? He, and he does seem to play it fast and loose. So, what, yeah. So, what do you see happening this year for for us and for them? Yeah, um, I have to say, he, he's not my favourite um, uh, politician. Um, I'm, I'm my. You're in a broad a broad camp there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, but unfortunately, I do agree with you that he's he's very lucky. Yeah, and he does um, put himself into situations which in, increases luck and I think at the moment it's actually a classic example where there's a dynamic whereby people tend to re- remember bad situations in terms of the last thing that happened in the process so um, I think to be fair they are do seem to be doing a good job of the vaccine program and I suspect that that's the thing that he might get remembered for more than all the mistakes they made earlier yeah all of the European chaos yeah, yeah, exactly. And he'll be able to kind of say we got the vaccine done, you know, quicker than anyone else, and it was worked like clockwork and all the rest of it. Which you know, there's some sort of truth in that. But um, he's he's just infuriatingly uh, lucky, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, it's, it's like he's been riding the last four years by the seat of his pants, waiting for an opportunity like the vaccine rollout to just turn it all around. Yeah, and he has been, you know, he has. I mean, he's, he would, and even though it's annoying for me, he would back up all the. All the well, certainly quite a few of the different things in the book. I mean, he's he's turned bad luck, you know, and the fact that he was ejected from government, wasn't he? And then came back in from the cold, and he turned that from you know from a bad thing into a good thing. He saw the opportunities. I mean, he's the arch opportunist, isn't it? Where he was yes. previously pre-remain, but then spotted that opportunity. He didn't have his head down in the newspaper counting the photographs. He was he's always looking around, kind of thinking, how can I um, profit from this situation and. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's sort of he's done that uh, relatively astutely. Um, yeah. But, you know, hopefully other people will. Uh, you know, we need to. There's a there's an incredible amount of confidence you get, I guess, from the sort of background that he has had, and we could do with him and people like that having a bit less of that, and uh, <laughs> other people having a little bit more share of their confidence. But let's just let's just take a moment to observe the wisdom in. Uh... Uh, in, in what you just said there, but not not maybe the details, but the the nature of it. So you you start out by saying he's not my choice, but then giving a perhaps even through gritted teeth a positive uh, you know appreciation. The message there is uh, it's uh, you know know your enemy, learn from them. If they're succeeding at something that you aren't, uh, see what you can do to to bring that into your uh, into your own fold. Uh, you know if you just ignore people who you disagree with. And if you're just like, wow, oh, they're not really doing anything. They don't know what they're doing. It's so, you know, always make the argument. Here's what they're doing right, even though I don't like them. And then maybe you can bring that into your toolkit, and you know, uh, uh, and, and succeed. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, we it's um, it is a truism that we live in a very polarized uh, world at the moment. We are, uh, as you say, very prone to ignoring people we don't like and. You, you do have to listen through great teeth and sort of uh, appreciate that they've got good qualities. You, I don't think you can get to uh, be prime minister just by being entirely lucky in the conventional sense. So he's he is the, probably the living body, and he, he was born with an enormous amount of privilege for, yes. for sure. Um, but then lots of other people were, um, you know, that haven't uh, managed to exploit it as, as well as he has. So he has. So then you have to think about what, how has he done that? And he has. He's been adept at. Um, keeping his eyes on, uh, you know, in his case, this sort of prize um, at the end. God, I find this hard to fight, to eke out the things that he's done well. <laughs> well, you can see what was happening pre-pandemic. There was all this big kind of ambitious, oh, I'm going to sp- spend, spend, spend and get loads of infrastructure going. And then, 
like you say, it's uh, the same thinking, but in a different way, but it's staying open to that opportunity. So like you say, you know, that's the lesson to take from it. It's, you know, stay flexible, be like water and try and notice the opportunities where they are and take them. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's great. Andy, thanks for coming on. It's been really, really a great chat and I'm very, um, you know, very happy to have been able to, uh, to to speak to you about this. I'm looking forward to the book coming out. So um, yeah, best of luck with uh, the sales. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been really good to be on and I really appreciate it. Cheers.